Good morning. It is great to be here with you this morning. Uh, it has been a wonderful service to this point, and uh, my prayer is that God continue to move uh, through me and uh, through the hearing of his word. Um, we are indeed, uh, as has been noted a few times now, uh, back in the book of Galatians. Uh, if you weren't here at the early part of the year, we started this year uh, just verse by verse, walking through the entirety of the book of Galatians. We made it through four chapters, uh, and then we paused uh, for the season of Easter. And since then, we've been on a pause, uh, and today uh, we pick back up with chapter five. Um, on, uh, well, a few days ago, I was sitting in my office, and I was trying to talk through some sermon notes uh, with Chase, and I said, hey, Chase, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you uh, what, uh, what we're talking about on Sunday. And so I start reading uh, through Galatians 5, and I get through, uh, I was planning on doing half the chapter. I was going to do through chapter, or through verse 15. And I get to the end of verse 15, and Chase is like, there's no way you're doing all of that. <laughs> I said, you're right. Uh, there is no way. Uh, so what you'll see here in the, in the coming minutes is in these six verses, there, is, uh, there are books, frankly. Uh, there's these themes that he's been weaving throughout the entire letter. Uh, and now here we are in chapter five, which is something of a pivot uh, in the letter itself. And he brings back to the table uh, a number of things he was talking about. And uh, we will get there. Uh, but for right now, if you will, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father God, <clears throat> Jesus Christ, our Lord and Holy Spirit, we invite you now into the deepest recesses of our hearts and minds, asking that you transform them completely from the inside out. Lord, through the hearing of your word and the preaching of your word, may we be transformed. God, we desire to be a spirit-filled people and I pray in this moment that you fill me with your spirit, and more importantly, those who hear this word with your spirit. God, we give you thanks in advance. We give you thanks for this letter that Paul has written, and we give you thanks for the way in which you have uh, moved through history, that you died on our behalf, and that you rose again from the, de from the dead, defeating death, that we might be saved and eternally united with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we begin in verse 1. A uh, quick outline of the sermon uh, were, uh, is verse 1, verses 2 and 3, verse 4, and then 5, and then I'll conclude with verse 6. Uh, so that's the outline of the, of the sermon, and here we go. Uh, verse 1, for freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Uh, by the way, if you, have, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, um, go ahead and pull one out in the pew back, uh, right that uh, should be sitting uh, in the pew in front of you. Um, you'll want to be reading along uh, and rereading some of this, because what Paul does here is he just packs 
way too much together. Uh, it turns out uh, he is, uh, I mean, he is just simply a dense writer. And when he writes something, he's pulling a lot uh, in one place. Uh, this verse, verse 1, most scholars uh, are going to say that this is technically the end of what precedes it, actually. So uh, if you don't recall, at the end of chapter 4, we get a very lengthy um, allegory of Hagar and Sarah, and he uses these two figures. One is, uh, uh, is in bondage, in slavery, and the other is free, uh, and he is putting forward that the, the free one represents those who are in Christ, and the one who is in bondage, uh, this is somebody who is under the law. And he is saying here again, he's kind of just simply recapping. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, just to very briefly, very, I promise you, briefly recap what's happening in this letter as a whole. If you don't know it, Paul's in a dogfight at the moment. Uh, he is uh, at odds with this group of people who have come in after he uh, preached to the Galatians, after he helped um, set this church on the right trajectory. And some other people, they came in and they, uh, as he says, added to his gospel, but by doing so, they distorted it completely. So Paul comes in and Paul says, uh, in Christ, we are completely free, and there is nothing else needed. And by that, namely, he means we don't need to keep the law, which back then would have been a huge question, right? Both for Gentiles and, frankly, for Jews, too, the question being, do we need to do things like keep kosher, circumcise our boys, keep Sabbath observances, holy days, these sorts of things? And to this, Paul says, no. And if you can't recognize how radical a change this is, then you probably just need to sit with this for a while. Because what Paul is doing is he is upending 2,000 years of Jewish history where they receive the law, right? And they follow it, or they try to anyway. And then now Paul is coming along and he's saying... We don't need this anymore. You don't need to uh, uh, use the law in this fashion anymore. And in doing so, you can imagine, well, if you know Paul's story, he gets himself in trouble any number of times, right? And he's often, he's, he starts, those who are in the Acts class, he starts in the synagogues and he's preaching the gospel of Jesus and it's just a matter of time till he gets run out of town, right? Well, Why? Because he's saying some pretty radical things, and we're reading it here in, in the letter to the Galatians, right? And so he's saying, we have been freed, and so we must not submit again to this yoke of slavery. Now, one question that's running through this entire letter is, one you, I've said before, but you might not be thinking, it is, what time is it? This is the question. What time is it? And Paul is saying, the times have changed. And he's saying, at the very beginning of it, and at the very end of this letter, he's telling us exactly what time we are in. And so if you turn to the opening verses uh, of this letter, 
We read in verse 4, 3 and 4, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to, and here it is, deliver us from the present evil age. Right, and so the time is, well, we're in this present evil age, as he calls it, and this time is passing, however. And we are moving into a, a new age or, or a new time in history. And he says this one at the very end. The final uh, uh, verses here in verse 15 of chapter 6. There's neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision, but a new creation. And so Paul is saying we are moving from this one time, this one epic, into another epic. And you have to recognize what period of time we are living in. Now the confusing part of it for Christians is that what Paul, maybe very quickly here, like a Jewish mindset back in uh, Paul's day and age would say, well, there's, there's a complete break that happens from the old uh, evil age into the, the new creation. Uh, Paul was not the only one expecting this, by the way. Most Jews of this day and age were expecting this. But what Paul's saying, and the way most scholars are going to put this, is that these two ages have actually been pulled over top of one another. And so we are in this age that is both already and not yet. Have you heard this phrase before? The already and the not yet. And so we are in an age in which already we have some access to the good gifts that Christ has offered us through his death and resurrection, and yet not yet. And so we live kind of in between the times, is how it often gets described. One of the, uh, beside uh, this big question of what time is it, what we must recognize is that with Jesus' death and resurrection, we find that history has hinged on this one moment and that everything has changed with this moment in almost every way you can possibly imagine. And so to think in terms of uh, the law and living out of the law, Paul is saying, no, everything has changed. The hinge of history has swung, and with Jesus' death and resurrection, we are now living as different kinds of people in this world. A side note to this is that we uh, need to learn to read our scriptures a little differently in light of this. Um, we cannot read our Old Testament in quite the same way that we read our New Testament. Because our New Testament gives us a new covenant, right? This is God doing something new. And in doing this new thing, He is changing how we read and interpret our Old Testament or our Old Covenant, and so to give you an example, a few weeks ago, we read from the prophet Elijah, right? And Elijah uh, is, is calling down fire from heaven, and then he goes out and he slaughters 450 uh, prophets of Baal. And I said, this is a, uh, an Old Testament story in like its truest sense, and it's filled with vengeance and bloodshed. And in the person of Jesus, uh, and with the death and resurrection of Jesus, we must reread a story like that 
to not say that we are intended to go out like uh, Elijah and slaughter the prophets of Baal, but we instead must reread something like that and say that Christ actually offers up a new way of understanding the world, a way in which, frankly, he has taken on the sins of the world and he's calling us to do something similar, to die to ourselves on behalf of a world that needs it. In verse 1, here we see that for freedom, Christ has set us free. And the freedom that we are offered in this passage is freedom from the law, yes, and freedom from sin as well. We are freed from the letter of the law, and it is freedom that we experience in Christ and in Christ alone. But it is a freedom that is not without borders. It is a freedom that is to be guided by the Spirit. We are to walk in the Spirit, he will say. Paul is here pulling from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33, where the prophet Jeremiah is offering a day when everything gets fulfilled, when the Messiah does indeed show up, and it says this about this new covenant time. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel, says God. After that time, declares the Lord. And he says, I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And so the letter of the law is moved from a book somewhere into our very hearts, and it is the Spirit of God that speaks into us to explain how we are to live out the law itself. Paul will later call this the law of Christ. Verse 2 and 3 go like this. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. What Paul is saying here in its briefest sense is, look, you're either under the old covenant or you're under the new covenant. You've got to choose. You can't do both. You can't live as Old Covenant people in a New Covenant time period. You can't have it both ways. The question you and I, however, must wrestle with is, um, is not so much that we ourselves try to submit to the law in quite the same ways that uh, these Galatians were doing. Instead, we must ask, what ways are we trying to live an old covenant Christianity, if that were a thing. It's a term that I coined. It, it's not real. No one talks this way. Because old covenant Christianity is, uh, this, is, uh, this is not real. This is actually what Paul is saying in the opening verses of this letter. He's saying that you can't have it both ways. You can't have a Christianity in which you're then also living under the Old Covenant. And so I've got here a few signs that might indicate to you you are living an Old Covenant Christianity. And it comes from the verses we're going to read here in a moment, and it comes out of Paul's letter to the Galatians as a whole. 
signs you might be an old covenant Christian. One, you're great at quoting the letter of the law or even scripture more generally, but you're not shaped by the spirit of scripture, by the heart of it, by the spirit moving through you. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says this, he's He's talking about using the Corinthian people as a letter of recommendation. They are his letter of recommendation, is what he says. I'll just read it to you. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And he says, basically, no. You, you Corinthians, or, or you Christians, are a letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and to be read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And what he is saying here is that the spirit moving in you people, there are the Corinthians, prayerfully, you here in this room or at home, uh, you people You are the letter of recommendation of God's Spirit moving through you. Are you that kind of letter? You, the individual, are you living out a life in which you represent the Holy Spirit moving through you so that when people look at you, they say, this person is a person of God. He doesn't stop there. In fact, that's not what drew me to this passage. He goes on. He says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. People who usher in a new covenant a new time period, a new way of being, a spirit-led way of being. And then he says, not of the letter, but of the spirit, right? We are ministers of a new covenant, he's saying. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. One sign that you might be an old covenant Christian is that you're great at quoting the letter of the law, but you're not shaped by the spirit that runs through Scripture. Number two, a sign that you might be an Old Covenant Christian is that your interpretation and application of Scripture is a heavy yoke that burdens others, maybe even yourself. And when Jesus says that his yoke is easy, and his burden is light, you just don't know what to do with that. Number three, your interpretation and application of the law and scripture is, quote, arguably biblical, because you're probably quoting from scripture somewhere, but it does not lead to the fruit of the Spirit. It does not lead to love, to joy, to peace, just to name a few of them. When you read scripture and you apply it in your life and in the lives of others, does it lead to those things? 
Number four, uh, you're great at dislodging the speck from another's eyes, but you fail to notice the log in your own eye. Number five, to use Paul's language, the faith you espouse and the faith you are calling others toward feels like slavery more than it feels like freedom. When you pull people into your orbit and you share your faith with them, are you sharing a faith that's filled with freedom or are you sharing a faith feels like slavery. Number six, your faith is more concerned with preserving traditions than allowing the Spirit to lead us into the future as it unfolds. Paul and Jesus, if they're doing one thing, they are looking at the tradition that came before them and they are saying, it's time to do something new, right? They are moving forward. And Paul here is making it explicit how, as spirit-filled people. This is not to say, I'm actually a traditionalist at heart. You should know this about me. Uh, I think tradition is incredibly important. In fact, I would argue that we need to reclaim some old traditions from 2,000 years of church history that perhaps we've lost along the way. I'm not about just kicking it all to the curb and doing something entirely new. However, if your tradition is keeping you from allowing the Spirit to move in the Spirit's fullness, then something's going wrong. Seven, and lastly here, you may speak of grace as a free gift of God, which it is, but your actions... Say that somehow you actually deserve this gift while some other people don't. When I think of uh, this, there's a story in my mind of somebody I was speaking to about grace and about salvation. And um, the person said, well, I mean, I've been a Christian my whole life. I deserve the, the language of deserve came out. I deserve this. And if you've been a Christian for five days, five years, or 75 years, we sometimes just simply need to be reminded that grace is grace. It is a free gift that had nothing to do with you and everything to do with the death and resurrection of Christ. Verse 4, moving forward. In verse 4, this is where, uh, if you're Lutheran, and I grew up with uh, an uncle uh, who was a Lutheran pastor. Uh, If you're a Lutheran, you really grab onto this verse because it it pulls together law and grace and and it seems to put them at odds with each other, and and frankly, it does. So, uh, verse 4, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Right? If you think that justification, or uh, to put this 
to translate it slightly differently, that your righteousness or your right relatedness or, or frankly where all of this is going, which is unity with God. That's what righteousness really is. It's us being united with God uh, in God's fullness in a way that was experienced in the garden, in a way that we uh, expect uh, in, in heaven. Uh, and, and so if you think that your righteousness or righteousness happens because of your keeping the law, Paul is saying, no. No. He's saying, by doing so, you have fallen away from grace, this free gift of God. Verse number five. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Wow, lots of buzzwords in here. Uh, we've got spirit, we've got faith, and we've got hope, we've got righteousness. This phrase, hope of righteousness, I almost preached on this uh, when I was going through the hope series uh, at Easter time. I considered using this maybe as like my last Sunday uh, and then pivoting back into Galatians with it, but I decided against it. However, this does give me the opportunity to remind us of where we came from over those weeks, right? And if you were here, or if you weren't here, uh, what we, talk, we, we talked about hope for seven weeks straight. And uh, there's a few things to know about hope. And I, I gave you two specific things that we await, right? That our hope is set, one, on a unity with God, on a righteousness that rightly connects us with God, and two, in an, a, a rightly ordered universe. Both of those things are broken at the moment. Our, you don't have to look hard to figure out that our universe is broken, right? You just crank up the internet and there it is. <clears throat> and you also don't have to look too far to realize that some sort of disunity has, has erupted between us and God. And so the grand hope of things is this righteousness or right relatedness with God. And what Paul is saying here is he's pulling this into our uh, orbit and into view here, and he's saying that it is through the Spirit, by faith. Here I'd layer two faiths, Christ's faithfulness on the cross and our own faith in Christ. And he's saying we ourselves eagerly then wait for that hope of righteousness. I want you to do a thought experiment for me here. I want you to envision yourself as life ends and new life is waiting for you on the other side, but maybe not quite yet. Like it's the day of judgment or you're standing before uh, the throne of God and you're pleading your case and there's the rest of humanity right there with you. How do you plead? What, what is it you say to God in that moment? I'll give you a few seconds to think about it. It's an important thought. My guess is some of the Jews in uh, Galatia uh, and Paul's day and age, they're going to say, uh, they're going to say Jesus, yeah, but they're also going to say, well, I kept the law. I did it all, right? I, I circumcised my boys, I, uh, I kept the food laws, uh, I, uh, I kept my Sabbaths, 
and they're going to say, God, uh, let me in, right? What, what would you say, though? What, what is it that you're standing on, and, and how are you pleading your case? Are you saying, I had the right theology, God. I, I went to seminary. I even got a doctorate afterward. I got all my thoughts lined up in a row. Let me in. Do you say, well, God, I read my Bible every day, and I prayed. I attend to church every Sunday. I was a good member of my community. Like, what is it? What are you standing on? What is your plea? And, and Paul here wants to say there's really only one right answer. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and Jesus' righteousness. Not like, that, that line actually confused me for a while because I mostly sing it and I never stop to slow down. We're standing uh, on Jesus' sacrifice and the righteousness that is offered through him. It is by being, as Paul says any number of times in this letter, is by being in Christ, by putting ourselves into his life and into his shoes that we can find righteousness, right relatedness with God. All those other things might be kind of important, but they're nothing compared to the one thing. Verse 6, finally. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Uh, Paul's going to say this a few times in this letter, that it, it doesn't, he comes on strong with the whole circumcision thing, uh, and then it's in a moment like this where he backs off just ever so slightly. And what he, he's doing is he's revealing his cards. He's saying, it actually, all that is insignificant. You know, that, that debate... That's not what this is about for him. It's about this one thing. It's about faith working through love. Now, if you were with me for the uh, seven weeks of Easter where we talked about hope, 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 and one more hope, uh, what I tried to do was I tried to connect faith, hope, and love. Do you remember this uh, through that series? Hopefully you do. And I talked one Sunday about uh, the connection between faith and hope, and then another Sunday about love and hope. And this is the Sunday where we see what together? Actually, we see all three. They're sitting right there. If you, right. I want to say just a brief word about faith and love and the connection of these two things, faith and love. I found this beautiful quote, if we can put it up, uh, by Thomas Merton that I used. Um, I, I, may, I may have actually used this already somewhere in that Hope series, um, but my guess is you can see it again here. Uh, this is what Merton says. He says, the beginning of the fight against hatred, the basic Christian answer to hatred, is not the commandment to love. This, ha this is the part that had me gripped. I was like, because that seems like the obvious answer, right? When you're facing hatred, don't, he, he's saying you actually don't start with love, like as if you can muscle your way to loving other people. 
He says, you don't start with the commandment to love, but what must necessarily come before in order to make the commandment bearable and comprehensible. I love Merton so much. Bearable and comprehensible. The command to love another can become unbearable if not understood and and comprehended in a larger scope. And he's going to give that to us. It is a prior commandment, which is to believe, that is, to have faith. Have faith. The root of Christian love is not the will to love. It's not like as if we can just command ourselves to, to gin up enough love in life. He says this is not where we start. But faith that one is loved, the faith that one is loved by God, that faith that one is loved by God, although unworthy or rather irrespective of one's worth. And I love how he ends this. He says that you and I are loved by God so fully and completely, irrespective of whether we deserve it, right, whether we're worthy of it or not. And that changes everything. And once we believe that, and once we have faith in that, once we stand on that, then this command to love those who hate us, that changes, right? We realize, wait a second, this is what God's been doing all along. And we are simply standing on the love that pours out of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that pours out and into our own lives. And in this way, we are called by Paul and Christ and God the Father that we are uh, people for whom neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. It is only faith which works itself out in being loving people. And so as we stand on the the love that comes from God, which is the faith, which is connected to the faith that we have in this loving being, then and only then can we be the kinds of people who live loving lives. To conclude here. Uh, Throughout Paul's letter to the Galatians, he says a lot about the law. It's actually, um, I haven't quite said it this way, but it's up for debate, actually, the relationship uh, Paul has with the law. Scholars and pastors alike uh, compete over what Paul is really saying about this relationship. But I think this much is abundantly clear. Paul wants to make clear to us that the law alone, it offers a diagnosis of our problems without offering a cure. It might give out Band-Aids or ibuprofen at times, but Paul's response is that Jesus comes along at the right time in history to offer the cure that the law could not offer. Jesus becomes the cure for a broken and sin-sick world, and the whole of creation has been groaning and longing for healing, and we are too. Paul's point 
is that human history is headed toward this kind of healing and redemption. It is heading toward a new Jerusalem in which we dwell with God, the hope of righteousness. How? Well, it's already been accomplished on the cross and through the resurrection. Death has been defeated. The cure has been applied through Christ, and we are simply waiting for the completion of it. So what does this look like? How does it change us? Well, I'll simply recap the sermon using Paul's buzzwords from Galatians 5, 1 through 6. It feels like freedom. It feels like grace. It feels like spirit living. It feels like faith walking. It feels like hope beyond hope. It feels like love. Is that what your faith looks like? Is that what your brand of Christianity looks like? My prayer is that it is. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, move us today to be people of the Spirit, people who love desperately a world just like you loved it and died for it and gave yourself for it. May we love it as well, but in a way that doesn't see fit to leave it where it is, but begins to offer hope to it. It draws us in and make us a hospital, Lord, where we begin to apply the cure of Jesus Christ to the lives of those who are here. I pray that South Rome Baptist Church is that kind of church. In Christ's name we pray, amen.